0: Good morning, Fremantle. Thank you very much, Heather, for that story about walking in other people's shoes. Um, I think, what's the young guy's name that was up here doing that? Sorry? Say it? Ilior. Ilior, you did a lot better than I think I would have in those (laughs) those types of shoes. So well done. Um, It's good to be here Uh, This Sabbath, um, to share with you guys, Uh, we have, what what I'm really impressed by is um, a lot of people are away, but they're at summer camp, they're helping out with other people and all these sorts of things. I really like that. It's sad to see people, like, you know, not not to see people here, but it's good because I know that they're helping out somewhere else. So we've got some young people who are down at summer camp helping out Willie and the and the team down there, uh, ministering to young people down there. So that's really cool. Um, I think we've got, what, a handful? There's a handful. Matt, Dan, uh, who else is down there? There's a couple other people down there. No? I can't think of anyone else. But, um, Let's, uh, yeah, let's have a word of prayer and we'll get stuck into it. Dear Father in heaven, we just thank you for this time that we can meet together today and we could just worship you through uh, giving and the songs and the children's story, Lord. And Lord, we pray that that worship continues as we listen to your word and we, and we learn from your actions um, and how you relate to humanity so that we can relate to humanity in a similar way. So Lord, and as I, as I uh, speak... Lord, I pray that you take away me, you take away distractions, you take away anything of myself, that you just present yourself, Lord, and the wonders of your, of your awesomeness um, and the way that you empathize and sympathize with humanity, Lord. As we do so, yeah, we just pray that you provide your Holy Spirit and um, we pray for those who weren't able to make it here today and just, uh, yeah, just be with them and bless them as well. Um, we pray for the summer camps down down at Mornington, and pray that you're you're being glorified to the young people down there, both those who are helping out and both those who are campers as well. Um, and Lord, we pray all this in your wonderful, blessed name, of Jesus. Amen. Um, walking in somebody else's shoes is an interesting sort of thing. Um, I remember my first ministry placement or deployment or whatever you want to call it where I was at Bunbury and there's some people here that were um, a part of the church that, that I was ministering at Bunbury um, and there was, I made friends with this particular guy named Dan Waring and I don't know if any of you know Dan Waring um, but he's a good guy, we became close friends um, and he was, a, he, he was married and a father of two at the time, he's a father of three now um, I think he's still a father of three, father, <laughs> he's got four now, I don't know, <laughs> um, but a father of three um, and I remember you know, going to their places for dinner or hanging out on a Sabbath afternoon or something like that and, um, and, and seeing him interact with his kids, seeing him try to put them to bed and all these sorts of things and I remember looking and going like, you know what, I wouldn't do that or I, I, would, I would do that or not that or, you know, when I get married and have kids, I'll, I'll be this type of father and I'll talk to Dan about this and, and he's like, he'd always say the same thing. He's like, he's like, you know what, I said a lot of stuff before I got married and had kids that I'd be this type of father and this type of husband, but this is what happens. <laughs> and now that I've got my own child... And, uh, and I've got a, a lovely wife and a lovely child. That I find myself going, Dan was right. <laughs> I was too young and too stupid to know what it was like to be a real father. And so a big thing for me was, like, oh, I'm not going to let my child watch TV. And now I let my child watch TV. Because <laughs> sometimes that's the only break that my wife and I get, isn't it? You know, that's the only break. Jarrah, here, just watch the wiggles. <laughs> Listen to the big red car song again (laughs) while Kelly and I are able to get some semblance of housework done around the place. And so I didn't know what it was like to be a parent until I experienced what it was like to be a parent. And Jesus does something fascinating as well. He does a very similar thing. God becomes a human to experience what it's like to be a human. And there's this fascinating thing, this fascinating idea that at the birth of Jesus, it was this quiet time, this placid time, this peaceful time. I think it was even, Kaylee, you mentioned this when we were preparing for, for carols. Like, you know, we sing this song. What's that song? Silent night, um, holy night. It's like this sort of really quiet time. Um, when really the birth of Jesus was anything but a quiet moment. There was this political and military unrest, political intrigue, religious dysfunction, censuses, murders, rebellions, all of this stuff was going on around this time. And at the very centre of the birth of Jesus is this uncomfortable military and political relationship between Rome and Israel, Where Rome has has conquered all of these countries, Rome comes in and conquers Israel and as was their way, they just kind of came into a country, they'd conquer that country, go you're a part of Rome now, install a puppet king, install a governor, install whatever they needed to to do their bidding and to keep something called the Paxa Romana and the Paxa Romana was just Latin for the peace of Rome. They didn't care what you guys did as long as you paid your taxes and there wasn't any rebellions or anything like that, any unrest in the country. That's all they cared about. Taxes, no unrest. Now this guy is King Herod. King Herod I or sometimes called King Herod the Great. Okay, This isn't Herod Antipas that would come along later on in the Gospels but this was his dad, okay? And this Herod was a scoundrel. Over the rule, he accumulated wealth and power and he built him up, built himself um, several colossal structures, including this structure here called the Promontory Palace, which doesn't look really great um, at now. Um, that's actually a photo taken back in 2013. Doesn't look really great now, more looked probably like this, okay? Um, had a, was, was on the beachfront, had a pool on the end there, um, had wonderful waterfront views, had a coliseum for chariot and horse races and gladiatorial battle, battles, and, and it also had a port for trade and those sorts of things and emissaries coming along. He also built another fortress um, called Masada, as a refuge and an intimidation tactic for foreign dignitaries. And it's, and, it, and it's actually known that he would invite emissaries to come along to this fortress, um, that, that they would come along, and if he perceived that they were up to something or he just thought that they were up to something to kind of take away from his power, take away from his authority, he would have them killed in this fortress. So it doesn't look like much today on the left, but on the right... That's what they think it most likely looks like. In fact, interesting story. I told my wife this story. She didn't seem to care, but that's all right. hope Maybe you might care. But there's a fun fact about this fortress. It's a massive fort, like it's a fortress built on top of this hill, um, and it's just sheer cliff face each side. And what's interesting about that is after King Herod, when the, when uh, after Jesus's uh, uh, death and resurrection and ascension to heaven. Israel started to, like, there was a lot of rebellions and stuff before, but they rebelled even more afterwards. And Rome, once again, wanting that Paxa Romana or that piece of Rome, these rebels would kind of like travel around the place, causing muck, um, causing interruptions and all this sort of stuff. And a bunch of rebels ran into this uh, this fortress, took over the fortress, and they were holed up in this fortress, it was only about 200 rebels, but Rome comes along. This, these uh, uh, army, or a couple, there was a couple of armies of Rome that kind of came along, surrounded it, and they're like, "Oh, we can't go up the 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 path, the front door to the front door because it's roughly about two men wide. The path all the way up. We're not going to be able to get in there. Two hundred men could hold it for months, years, even." And so, interestingly enough. The Romans had already like sort of captured some of the, some rebels that kind of had a, a, a group of slaves with them and interestingly enough, the group of slaves, they go, hey, build us a ramp up to this fortress and you can see the ramp, it's still there today. They built this ramp up to the fortress and because the fortress walls are made out of mud and wood, they just set fire to the wall and let it burn overnight and they're like, okay, in the morning we'll come up there with our troops and we'll take it over. And interestingly enough, these rebels knew their predicament and famously in the, in the Israel, Israelite culture, they ended up killing themselves because they didn't want to be taken by the Romans. And there's a big deal about that because in, in Israelite culture, if you commit suicide, you don't get to go to heaven. And so they had this big lots kind of cast and they would like kind of go, okay, who's going to be the last guy? So he would kill everyone else and the last guy would then either succumb to Rome or end up killing himself. And he ended up not killing himself, he ended up getting captured by the Romans. But Masada, this really famous structure. Anyway, um, and interestingly enough, this guy, this is Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, or Caesar at the time, famously said about Herod the Great, he said it would have been better to be Herod's pig than his son, Fascinating character description, right? Better to be Herod's pig than his son. Because Herod was in this continual state of paranoia and he killed whoever he wanted to kill in case somebody would seek to usurp his throne, somebody would seek to obtain authority, somebody would seek to obtain the throne through illegitimate and less than honourable means, which is exactly how he got to the throne. In fact, just before he would die, he would kill his eldest son. He had his favourite wife strangled to death, which later he would regret because she ended up being innocent of what she was accused of doing. He was king of the Jews, but only part Jewish. And Rome had set him up as this puppet king. And they would set up these puppet kings up in various areas that they'd conquered to keep this peace but the Jews, under Herod's rule, despised him. Hello, Baba. <laughs> she's fascinated by my storytelling. <laughs> I'm assuming. No, no, I'm just kidding. Um, and so when these wise men, they come to find the Messiah, they, come, they travel all this way. Oh, she's upset now. Sorry. Um. Anyway, sorry, I get distracted. And so, when these wise men come to find the Messiah and ask about the Messiah, this actually causes a bit, of, uh, like quite a lot of attention in, in Jerusalem. When these people from who aren't Jewish come along to Jerusalem, and they're going, "Hey, where's the Messiah? Where's the Anointed One? Where's the?" And, and for Jews, Messiah, Anointed One means meant something very specific. It meant that it was the Anointed King of Israel. And this wouldn't go unnoticed by King Herod and he'd call them in to inquire about their purpose of their search and and one of the founders of the 7th Adventist church gives us some insight into the situation and she says this. She says, The arrival of the Magi was quickly noised throughout Jerusalem. Their strange errand created an excitement among the people which penetrated to the palace of King Herod. The wily Edomite was was aroused at the attention of the possible rival. Countless murders had stained his pathway to the throne. Being of alien blood, he was hated by the people over whom he ruled. His only security was the favour of Rome, but this new prince had a higher claim. He was born to the kingdom. Interestingly enough, Herod was filled with this wrath and this fear of, of inside, but had this pretense of calmness, this pretense of, of security in his throne. And when he talks to the wise men, he encourages them and says, hey, go search out this guy, search out this anointed king, search out the Messiah and ask him, come back and tell me about it. Tell me where he is so that I can worship him as well. And so the wise men, they go find Jesus and they worship him and they give him gifts. But an angel comes and warns them. And instead of going back to Herod, they they are warned and they go another way home. And we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 2 verse 13 to 5. Matthew chapter 2 verse 13 to 15, sorry, not 5. I'm not going backwards, I'm going forwards. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 to 15 says this. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying... He's talking about the wise men. When the wise men departed and went their way back to their homeland, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until, you, until I bring word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I call my son. We're very much presented with this sense of Jesus already in the shadow of the cross. Already in a journey to the cross, and just in chapter 2, we have a parano- we have paranoia, we have scheming, we have babies being slaughtered. This is very much juxtaposed to silent night. You don't get any sense of that in the Gospel of Matthew. This is Jesus as a refugee with a price on his head. And when Herod finds out that the wise men have left another way, they've gone home, they're no longer in the country, they didn't come to him to let him know about this legitimate king, he says, all right, slaughter all the babies under the age of two. Kill them all. This is the same Herod, five days before his death, he would have his his eldest son killed. He was on his deathbed and he kind of goes, before I die, kill my eldest son. So, when he finds out there's a king who has actual legitimate genealogic, genealog, uh, genealogical uh, authority to be king, his response is kill all of them to make sure he's wiped out. And so the angel appears to Joseph that he needs to take his family to Egypt. Get out, go to Egypt. And I know I've already talked about this before in this church, but I just want to put it here again. Even in Jesus' flight to Egypt indicates his reception by Gentiles and their nations. Even in his flight to Egypt, Matthew is putting people who aren't Jewish in a positive light in his gospel. People who aren't of a particular group, people who aren't even of of Jesus' group of people, he's putting them in a positive light. He went to Egypt. This this nation, this country allowed him in. Funnily enough, N.T. Wright would write this in his Matthew for Everyone. He says, banish all thoughts of peaceful Christmas scenes. Before the Prince of Peace had learned to walk and talk, he was a homeless refugee with a price on his head. If he is to be a manual God with us, he must, be, he must be with us where the pain is. I just want to point out here, isn't it incredible that today we're probably in, one of the, in the midst of one of the greatest refugee crises the world has ever seen? Interesting, interesting fact is that 1% of the world's population has been displaced from their native or ancestral home in the last decade. Just 10 years, 1% of the world's population has been displaced from their country or homeland. And that might not sound like a lot, 1%. But think about it. The latest estimate of the Earth's population is what? Sorry? It's seven it's like I look, I Googled it last night, seven point nine billion people. One percent of seven point nine billion people who's good at maths? I needed a calculator to work it out. Who knows? Sorry? It's seventy nine million people. That is over three times Australia's population. We have roughly 25 million people in our country. Three times Australia's population are refugees displaced from their country due to either war or conflict 79 million people in the last 10 years have been displaced by the war conflict political means whatever have you 79 people uh, so 79 million people right now refugees immigrants right now and you know what's crazy that's crazy enough, but even crazier than that is that the story of Jesus is a point of connection, a touchstone to people who have no home, who have no security, a people who are vulnerable, and we can share with them or they can read the Gospels and say, and, and say wait a minute, God was a refugee? God was an immigrant? God knows what it's like to, to not know where he might be staying, where he might be sleeping, where his, not, his next meal might come from. That's the God of Scripture. Not an aloof, divine God sitting up there on his throne of the universe, detached from and distant from his creation, distant from the difficulties or the problems through life. Jesus is presented to us as God from the very outset in those moments of vulnerability and fear, he is there with us. Jesus and his family has to flee from their own country for their life. And for people who don't know where their, where their place is or, or who are afraid or who are worried about tomorrow or who are worried about finances or, or who are in pain of any type or form, Jesus knows what that's like. He's not God in some generic sense. If if the biblical story is true, then it's the most beautiful story ever told. That God is is with us, not in some placid, halcyatic sense. God is with us in pain and uncertainty and difficulties. When Jesus is fleeing from his own people, he flees to Egypt which leads us into one of the most incredible parallels of Jesus' life and the Old Testament. To really drive this point home, Matthew almost wants to, like he's alluding to it, but he almost gets carried away with this idea to try to drive this point home that God is experiencing what it's like to be a human. God going through what what we go through, Jesus through his journey to the cross parallels a similar journey that the Israelites took in the Old Testament. Here's just a quick snapshot of it. Israel in Egypt, Jesus was in Egypt. Israel baptised in the Jordan River, Jesus was baptised in the Jordan Israel spends 40 years wandering around the wilderness. Jesus spends 40 days wandering around the wilderness. Humanity is tempted. Jesus is tempted. Israel receives the law at Mount Sinai. Jesus talks about the law on the the Sermon on the Mount. Israel's 12, 12 tribes, Jesus has 12 disciples representing the 12 tribes. Israel's persecuted. Jesus is persecuted and killed. Moses led the people to the promised land. Jesus leads people to the true promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. In a fascinating way, Jesus walks in a very similar path that the Israelites walked, exemplifying in a wonderful way that verse in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathise with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That God would experience life just as we do. In fact, worse than we do. That we here get to live pretty cushy lives in lovely WA and enjoy the benefits of this culture, this society, this country that not many people get to. And Jesus didn't get to. Jesus' birth and flight to and from Egypt loudly announces the new exodus has begun, and the better Moses is here. Matthew is saying that Jesus fulfilled, reviewing, recapitulating the history of Israel, the new exodus has come, and Jesus will chart his way through this wilderness. And I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry, that I've been preaching on just the first two chapters of the book of Matthew because there is so much here to digest about just how wonderful God is and that He is with His people. He relates to His people. He knows what it's like to be His people. There is no one else that I would rather follow than this Jesus that I want to, here today, say that Jesus is not just the King of the Jews. He's the King of something bigger, something grander, that He is the King of the whole world. And most importantly, He's the King of my life. And my question to you is, is He your King? A King that knows your hardships, knows what it's like, knows what your struggles are like, sympathises and empathises with every step that you take through life. Do you want him to be your king? Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a king that is intimately involved with humanity. We thank you that you are a God that doesn't sit aloof, that doesn't sit distant, that doesn't, it doesn't not relate with what we go through, that you are a God that experienced what it was like to be human. You came to earth and were born as a human and experienced things that even we here today possibly don't know what it's like. Lord, you experienced what even the lowliest, lowliest of us experienced. And we thank you that you're that type of God. And when we come to interacting with people around us, when we come to thinking about our country, thinking about the comforts that we enjoy, thinking about the things that, that we find uh, relaxing or comfortable or, or, or whatever have you, we, think, we should bring to our mind and we should be thinking there are many people that don't have these comforts. Many people, immigrants, refugees, fleeing from danger, fleeing from, from a, a death, fleeing from whatever it is that's causing them to flee. Lord, you experienced what that was like. And Lord, I pray that you help us and guide us to assist where we can. That you lead us to, to pick up on the opportunities that you want us To pick up on, to minister to people, to help people, to encourage people and to share them, share you with them, a God that experienced what they experienced. Lord, I pray this in your wonderful, blessed name, Jesus. Amen.